Big Fish is a delightful movie directed by Tim Burton. I highly recommend it. It's about a father, Edward, and his son, Will. And the movie begins, uh, Will is getting married. And Edward is telling the story of Will's, the day that Will was born, a story he's told many, many times. And it's a fantastical story. He says that he was out fishing for this great catfish, which no one had ever caught, in, and that he used his wedding ring as bait, and he caught this fish. And Will had been hearing his dad tell stories like this his whole life, and he just was sick of it. He thought his dad was a big liar, made up these stories just to get attention. So he cuts off all relationships with his father for three years. And then in three years, his father is very sick from cancer. And so Will returns to spend time with him in his hospital room. And Will is determined to get the truth of his father's life and not all these stories that he told. But his father goes and basically tells those same stories. And his father's life is, is just these amazing adventures, basically. Uh, perilous adventures, overcoming odds. He is, uh, this, the title Big Fish has a lot of meanings because there's this big fish that he catches, but also when he was a boy, he thought, you know, a fish in a fishbowl doesn't grow too big. He has to go out into this a bigger body of water so that it can grow. But in any event, there was a key event that his father says that gave him courage for all these adventures. And that's when he was a boy, he and his friends snuck into the house of a local witch. And she had a glass eye. And if you looked into her glass eye, you could see the moment of your death. So he and his friends looked and saw. And obviously, if you see that you die at a very old age in your bed, then you know that whatever happens to you in life is not going to kill you, right? So this gave him great courage. Imagine that you were about to set out on a long and difficult and dangerous journey, but you knew you would arrive safely at your destination. It would give you great confidence along the way. Our first reading is the beginning of Israel's story, Israel's story proper, which is the call of Abram. God says to him, go forth from your hometown to a land that I will show you. And God tells Abram, how the story will develop and how it will end. He says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. That is, you will give him many abundant descendants. I will make for you a great name. That is, a royal dynasty. And through you, every community of the earth will be blessed. It is an ending, of course, which extends far beyond Abram's mortal life. But he trusts in this promise of this wonderful ending. And so we are told that Abram went as the Lord directed. It is Peter, James, and John who get to see what Abram was promised. They see that on Mount Tabor. Jesus takes them. These are his kind of inner circle. Takes them up to the mountain. And then he is transfigured before them. He radiates this brilliant light like the sun. He is conversing with the two big all-stars of Israel's history, Moses and Elijah. There is the cloud of Yahweh's presence and then the voice of Yahweh is heard saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They see in 
the glorified Messiah, this descendant of Abraham, through whom all nations of the world will be blessed. They see, indeed, they see the end of history on that mountain. Isaiah foretells that the end of history will be on this mountain where we dwell with the Lord, where all evil is finally defeated. And this is why Peter, they want to just stay there and make their tents there. God's promise to Abram has a summary of the major stages of Israel's history. Remember that his descendants end up in Egypt because Joseph, his, I guess this is his great, great grandson. I have to, I have to, I have to go back and, do, and look at it all. But anyways, Joseph ends up a member in Egypt. So they all end up there and then over many generations, they multiply. So they go from a little, a little tribe to a nation of many tribes. And that is where God calls Moses to lead them out of captivity, to lead them into the promised land. Along the way, signs and wonders. Moses became mediator of a covenant between Abram's descendants and God. Now Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Torah or the Pentateuch or simply the law. Elijah, remember, was a prophet called by God during the reign of a wicked king and queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And remember that Elijah is called at a time where the people have turned away from the worship of God, they're worshiping Baal. And so through Elijah, God does amazing things again. You know, he, Elijah is able to call down fire from heaven and then the people repent and they turn back to the Lord. And Elijah's life didn't end in death. In fact, he ends up being taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Elijah represents the prophets. And one of the ways that Jews in Jesus' day, days referred to all of their salvation history, the entire Old Testament, was by referring to it as the law and the prophets. And so here they are personified in Moses and Elijah bearing witness to Christ that he is the beloved Son of God. He is the mediator of the new and everlasting covenant through which God reconciles mankind to himself. Now Jesus doesn't just save us, but he calls us, like Abraham, to set out on a long and difficult and exciting adventure. We heard in our second reading Paul's letter to Timothy. He saved us and called us to a holy life. That's the adventure to live a holy life, to grow in holiness. Not according to our works, but according to his own design and the grace bestowed on us in Christ Jesus. We are also told in that second reading to bear our share of hardship for the gospel. This exhortation is on the second Sunday of Lent because during the season of Lent, we voluntarily take upon ourselves certain hardships. We are told to bear these with the strength that comes from God. Peter experienced many amazing things in his life. You know, we, we, we meet him in this story as he's a simple fisherman in the Sea of Galilee, and then everything is upended when Jesus comes into his life and says, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And think of all the things that he witnessed, traveling with Jesus, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' uh, forgiving of, of sinners, Jesus' miracles and casting out demons. There, when Jesus is arrested... And then, of course, Jesus' appearance to him after, he, uh, after his death, after he rises again. And even, even he sees Jesus ascended to heaven. And then in his own life afterwards, Jesus experiences um, 
different sufferings. He's in prison. He's beaten. But he also experiences the power of Christ working through him as he proclaims the gospel of the Lord and as he does many miracles himself. But near the end of his life, Peter writes to the Christians, his spiritual children, during a time of persecution. And what event does he come back to? Of all the things he's witnessed, all the things he went through, what event does he come back to? This is in 2 Peter. He comes back to the transfiguration. That is the event he comes back to. If we, read, we read in 2 Peter. Now he probably had shared this many times with them, but he's reminding them. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on to describe what he saw on that mountain. So the transfiguration then is the vision of the end of the story when Jesus comes in glory. Yesterday I was discussing with a friend some of the problems in the church and the world. And I said to him something which I've been experiencing more of late that I don't dwell too much on that anymore because I know how the story ends. I know how the story ends. It ends with God's victory. Now, I, yeah, of course, there's lots of twists and turns getting there. Yes, there is suffering and testing. Yes, we will need to cling to the grace of God to persevere and endure. Certainly, during suffering, we can doubt. Peter, remember, even though he saw Jesus in the mountain glorified, what does he do? He denies Christ out of fear. You may know about St. Jose Maria Escriva. He was a Spanish priest, the founder of a movement in the church called Opus Dei, which means the work of God. And when he was a young priest, he sensed God was calling him to, to do something besides just being a diocesan priest. And he didn't know what it was. He was praying for years and years, Lord, help me to see what it is. And then on the Feast of the Guardian Angels, he had a vision of this whole thing, which would decades, decades later become Opus Dei. All these men and women working in the world, sanctifying their work, their ordinary family life. So he has this vision of where God's calling him to, his, his portion in this promised land. But then, not long after that, it seems like it would never happen because Spain had a brutal civil war and he was living in an area controlled by what was called the Republicans. Not the same as the Republican Party. These are the Republicans in Spain who were actually very anti-Christian. They were killing thousands of priests and nuns. So he's barely escaping for his life with just a handful of this early group of disciples in a sense that he had called to himself. And they're having to make this perilous trek across the Pyrenees Mountains. And he gets to this point where he gets to the edge of despair. And God gives him a little sign but it's really a reminder that God had already shown him how that story was going to go. During times like these, we need to reflect on the transfigured Lord. Remember the happy ending. I leave you with these words of St. Peter. You do well to be attentive to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts.